0: If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them this morning with me once again to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 4. We continue our study of this Old Testament minor prophet and uh, find ourselves this morning in Zechariah 4. For weeks now, we have been captivated by uh, the imagery of these night visions. Uh, We can say night visions because we've been looking at them individually. We can say night vision because we think they all came in one big night, one exhausting night for poor Zechariah. But we've been captivated by the imagery that the Lord has used to really take truths that His people needed to hear and just in vivid technicolor detail, throw them before their imaginations. And so we've looked at horsemen mysteriously hiding In a myrtle glen, we've looked at powerful horns being cast down by seemingly ordinary craftsmen. And we looked at a mysterious man measuring the length and the breadth, the dimensions of the holy city of Jerusalem. These are visions that are given first and foremost for the benefit of God's people long ago. These people of the sixth century, these people who are seeking to rebuild their city, to rebuild their way of life, and most importantly, to rebuild their place of worship, the temple. And so as we have seen, and as I've sought to remind you of, the temple has been at the heart of this message, rebuilding this temple city in a, in a sense. But breathed by the Holy Spirit, carried for generations to us here today, these visions are for us. 2022, Edmonds, Washington, the Lord is still speaking to us. A people redeemed by Jesus, the Messiah, the one long-promised The one who we so clearly were pointed to last week. If you were here last week, we were reminded what undergirds our entire lives, our entire existence God's favor, God's grace, His undeserved merit. And it was a good news that was symbolized for us last week in a vision given of Joshua, the high priest, who stood in filthy garments. Reminding him and reminding us that that we are not enough before a holy God. And yet those garments are quickly removed. And he's given a robe of righteousness because Jesus is more than enough. And so this morning, in many ways, this next vision, it builds on that message. In a sense, everything builds on the gospel But this vision builds on that message that we looked at last week, and it's with the gospel at our backs that we press forward with the work that God has called us to be about, taking our place in God's vision for us and for the world. And I hope you see that today as we work our way through this vision. Zechariah chapter 4, we're going to read the whole chapter, which is just 14 verses. As is our custom, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. You can follow along on the screen behind me. Listen as I read Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Says the Lord of hosts, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, his hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. And then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which all the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, do you not know what these things are? And I said, no, my Lord. And then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. The glory days. Ah, the glory days. Do you remember them? Do you remember the glory days? We all have them. Something, something popped into your mind when I said that phrase. Perhaps a job. Maybe a place that you lived. A season of your life that was particularly sweet. Maybe it's right now. We remember and maybe long for a return to those days of joy and blessing. Of course, we forget all the accompanying struggle and hardship of those days. We romanticize the glory days in our mind. We think of them as large, and we think of everything else as small in comparison to them. I think as I thought about that concept, I think probably one of the things that popped into my mind, maybe Anna's mind too, is is those seminary years for us. Seminary days where we lived in a community of like minded students, all kind of focused on the same thing, little taste of heaven. Babies and toddlers everywhere, our future's bright before us. What are your glory days? You see, God's people in the 6th century, they had their glory days. It was the era when, when the kingdom was united, when David and his son Solomon ruled and reigned the land, when Solomon built this incredible, incredible temple to Yahweh, the Lord of Hosts. And it seemed like after this season, this generation of judgment in exile, it seemed like with Cyrus' decree and this remnant returning to Jerusalem, everything was headed in the right direction. But now, as we've talked about before, now it seems that discouragement and, and disillusionment have settled in the hearts of God's people. Will the glory of what once was ever return? They must have been crying out. Well, the Lord here in Zechariah 4 speaks encouragement to His people. And not just an encouragement for the 6th century, but an encouragement to us here today because though we're not seeking to build a physical temple, we are seeking to be built up as the temple of God, as the dwelling place of God, as the manifestation of His presence on earth. But you and I know, we've talked about it before, it's difficult at times. It's tough. It's discouraging. So two realities I want you to hear from this passage this morning. Two encouragements that I hope will challenge all of our hearts. And they're drawn from the two powerful and most likely most familiar statements found in these verses. We'll get to them in just a minute. But here's the first encouragement. God's Spirit supplies all that we need. God's Spirit supplies all that we need. Let's begin by addressing how this vision starts. Because it begins with this interesting interaction between Zechariah and the angel. Zechariah needs to be woken up. Now, I don't think Zechariah had fallen asleep. He had not gotten bored with what was going on. It says in our passage, he is like a man that needs to be awakened. So he's not literally asleep. No, I think what's being communicated here, interestingly enough, is that during this whole crazy night, the Lord is giving Zechariah a a heightened sense of spiritual perception. It's pretty extraordinary. It's incredible. He is seeing things about the world, about God's movement in the world, that so few see. I'm sure Zechariah was exhausted, and I'm sure he would never be the same, but he wasn't asleep. He's woken up again, and his spiritual perception, let's say, is, is alerted, and he begins to see So what does he see? Well, what he sees is given to us in verses 1 through 6a. 6a, that's just a way to say the first half of verse 6. And then skipping to the end of our passage, the explanation of what he sees is in 10b, through 14, through verses 14. And then what is in the middle of our passage, in the heart of our passage, 6b, the latter half of verse 6 through verse 10, is the application. And that's where we begin. So I just want you to know and hear that structure of what he sees and what is explained and then the heart of what it, how it's applied. Verse 6, let's begin with that statement. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Anyone ever heard that verse? Yeah, it's a familiar verse. Or to say it another way, God's spirit supplies all that we need. The question is, how is this verse, that pithy, powerful statement, how is it communicated to Zechariah through this vision? Well, that's what we're going to unpack here for a moment. The vision begins with a lampstand. The Hebrew word is menorah. Okay? This isn't just any lampstand. This is one made of gold. So this isn't a common lampstand. This is one made for liturgical use. For ritual use. Now, lampstands for the people of Israel would have been very familiar to them. One of them was placed in the tabernacle. Back in Exodus, God gives instructions for all the elements of the tabernacle. And one of the elements in the tabernacle was a lampstand that was to burn. There were ten lampstands in this wonderfully impressive temple of the glory days of Solomon. There were ten of them. And they were a vessel that stood in the holy place, outside of the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, to illumine the room as the God's people approached God, specifically as the priests approached God on behalf of the people. So Zechariah sees this lampstand, and this lampstand isn't normal, though. It's just not, it's not a normal lampstand like they'd see in the tabernacle or in the temple of old. It's got a bowl on top of it with seven lamps on it, with seven lips or, or spouts, you might say, on each lamp, and so if you're kind of trying to create this in your mind's eye, it's Basically 49 wicks, 49 flames total. It's, as one of my former professors called it, it's a super menorah, right? It's this giant menorah that outshines all previous ones. So that's the first thing he sees, is he sees a lampstand with a bowl with seven lamps on it. And then, next to each bowl, two olive trees. Now, Zechariah doesn't know what all these things are communicating, somewhat to the surprise of the angel. That's an interesting part of this passage. After all, these were familiar things to the Jews, and perhaps the angel thought that Zechariah should have more easily put two and two together and figured out what was being communicated, but, but he needs help. And for sure, we, a bunch of Gentiles sitting here in 2022, we need help trying to understand what is being said here. So let's jump to the latter half of verse 10. This is where it's explained, right? So we've seen the vision, verses 1 through 6. Now we're jumping to verse 10 to help us explain it. These seven, verse 10, are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. All right, so in your mind's eye, the seven lamps on top are the watchfulness of Yahweh. That's what they represent. That's why they're like no other menorah ever seen. Seven, of course, is this number of completeness and perfection in the Scripture. And so Yahweh is with absolute comprehensiveness watching over and blessing His people. This isn't some general awareness, like He's just aware of what's going on. No, He's watching for their good. Psalm 34, verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears towards their cry so these lamps stand over and above the lampstand which the lampstand in and of itself represents our light it represents god's people our calling to illumine the way to god so here is what yahweh is communicating through this incredible vision He's communicating that the light of his presence is with his people as they reflect that light to the nations. But more than that, it will never diminish because all of this light, this super menorah has an endless supply of oil. Daniel 12 says this about us reflecting the light. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And of course, in the New Testament, Jesus' own words, Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. But who are the trees? So we've got these trees beside the bull what are they doing and why are they there and who are they well some have speculated that these trees are some kind of divine being who are just watching over this whole process but i think there's good evidence for and many would argue the same that in our context the two trees are zerubbabel the governor who is reigning and ruling in that era and Joshua, the high priest, who we looked at last week. These are the two men who are tasked with making sure that the community remains focused on its task and focused on the Lord. And their fulfillment of two offices, a kingly office in Zerubbabel as governor and a priestly office in Joshua as the priest, points to someone else our prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus Himself. And so these olive trees, their job is to keep oil flowing to the lamps through the bowl. So let's put all of this together. You've got olive trees which are constantly growing olives. Those olives are providing the oil to fill the bowl, and it's never running out. The oil that is filling the bowl is the Holy Spirit, the one who has anointed his people, right? The one who has come on his people, the one whom Jesus gave us at his departure, the one who gives light and sustainability to the light. And therefore, the Spirit of God is fueling the flames which feed the light, our light. So that's the picture that we have, is olive trees filling the bowl, which is the Spirit, fueling the flames, which is our life, and our light together. Do you see how this picture would have been an encouragement to God's people? Do, do you find it an encouragement in our life together? God's Spirit will supply all that we need. That's what's being communicated here to Zechariah. Haggai, the prophet who prophesied around the same time, says this in Haggai 2.5, My Spirit remains in your midst... Fear not. The Apostle Paul, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so it's not as if you've been given new clothes and then you are instructed, you better go out and keep those things clean. No. That's not the gospel. We are continually sustained by the life of the Spirit because of the ministry of Jesus. We're not left to ourselves. God's people were not left to themselves. And as He communicates to them in verse 7, whatever mountain they face, Right? For God's people then in the 6th century, what mountain did they face? Well, there were political challenges, enemies and red tape that they had to work through. There were practical challenges. After all, Jerusalem was just a pile of rubble, a pile of stones. How are we going to do this? And then there were spiritual battles, right? Discouragement. The accusations of the enemy. And the Lord says that all of it will be made level under the ministry of Zerubbabel, under the ministry of Joshua, as they keep God's people's eyes on the goal and on the grace that has been given to them. And so it's not going to come through personal or corporate resolve. It's not going to come through ingenuity or resources alone. It's going to come through him. Not by human might, not by human power, but through my power, says the Lord. By my spirit, says the Lord. My spirit will supply all that you need. Now why is this important? Let me give you two reasons before we move on. One is he gets the glory. God gets the glory alone. Verse seven, we learn of this top stone being put into place at the completion of this temple. Because this temple, this physical temple that's being promised, it will be completed, right? I mean, it's communicated in this text that Zerubbabel will basically, he'll cut the ribbon that breaks ground and he will put the final stone on this temple. It will happen. This is God's promise to those in the 6th century that he will do it. But what is this stone? Well, some think it is a continuity stone. So basically it's a stone from the old temple that is now being put in the new temple just to provide continuity between these two buildings and between these two places of worship. Others think it's the capstone, the final stone that is kind of put on the temple when everything is completed. We don't know exactly what the top stone means, but it really it doesn't matter at the end of the day because when the top stone is placed... What is cried out by God's people? Not Joshua, Joshua, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel. But grace, grace. That's what's cried out. He gets the glory. Because it's His Spirit and the endless supply of His Spirit that has fueled and has accomplished His purposes. So that's the first reason why it's important. The second reason is because it challenges us about where our reliance is in our lives, in the Christian life. There's an old story told. I read it this week in my reading. It's not created by me. It's not a true story either. But it's a good illustration. There's this old crusty woodsman. An old crusty woodsman came into town one day in search of a new axe. He had some trees to cut down on his property. And he came up to the counter and he saw that a new saw had been advertised. It was called a chainsaw. And it was guaranteed to cut down twice as many trees. And so he bought it. A week later, he came back with this chainsaw. And he was complaining. He was demanding his money back. He told the owner of the shop who sold him this chainsaw that his previous axe cut down like 10 trees every day. This saw barely he could get one tree cut down in a day. So the owner took the chainsaw and looked over it and he couldn't find anything wrong with it. So he grabs the cord and he pulls it and starts it. And the old man jumps back in surprise and says, What's that noise? You see, you and I are invited to live by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. We have this endless supply of, of strength given to us. And yet we try it on our own. Endless resources. And we try it on our own. And really, as I study this passage, it was just another indictment on my own prayer life and my own lack of prayer. My lack of pleading for more of the Spirit's presence in my life. And you say, well, why do we need to plead for the Spirit's presence in our lives? The Spirit comes to us when we accept Christ and He is a part of our lives. And and yes, that is true. The Spirit is always with us as His people. But I love D.L. Moody His answer to this, this, the old author, he was asked once about why he prayed for more of the Spirit, and he he just says three words. Because I leak. That's why he prays for more of the Spirit. I think the encouragement to us, brothers and sisters, is not only to recognize this bowl of oil that is the Holy Spirit, that is the endless supply of strength for His people flowing from the Son, but let's depend upon it. Let's depend upon it. With that foundation, we move to the second and equally encouraging reality, which is this: God loves to use small things. God loves to use small things. Let me draw your attention to verse 10. Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. In other words, all the doubters, all those who threw shade on humble beginnings and means will see the temple go up. And indeed, it will go up. Zerubbabel and Joshua will lead to that end. But along the way, as God's people looked at the slow progress, some said this, if this is what the kingdom looks like, I'll just go back to my place and work on my yard. i got better things to do with my time. I mean, come on, where are the mighty acts of, of Yahweh. Yahweh who parted the Red Sea, who made Jericho implode on itself. Where's that Yahweh? Here we are in Jerusalem, a bunch of just plodding along. The Lord says to His people, My power and My promises aren't nullified by what you see. And how you interpret what you see. You see, a day is coming when things won't be so small. But don't despise these days because A, small things add up, right? And B, small things plus a big God and an endless supply of His Spirit equals big things. Our God loves the small. We learn dependence and perseverance in the small. He gets all the glory in the small. Just think about it. Israel began through the barrenness of an old Middle Eastern woman, a small, inconsequential ethnic people chosen. And then there is this incredible story in 1 Kings 19 of Elijah. And the Lord comes to him, not in this great and strong wind that tore the mountain, not in the earthquake that shook the earth, not in the fire that burned light, but how? In the sound of a low whisper, the Scripture says. Now, those Those other things, they were all signs of Mount Sinai. And they they have their place. The spectacular has its place. But not always. And we come to the New Testament. A baby born in a manger. A homeless rabbi killed like a common criminal on a Roman cross. The Son of God became small for us. And then from Him, 12 uneducated men surrounded by a bunch of wonderful women who were second-class citizens in that day. And that little band of believers changed the world. Thousands of years of its expansion. And we sit here today because of it. I could go on and on. God loves to use small things. So how does that encourage us this morning? Well, look around. (laughs) We're small. We're small. When I came here 12 years ago, we were just a bit smaller than we are today. Man, can that be discouraging. I've had my days with that reality, believe me. Maybe we need to make something happen. Maybe I need to water down my message to make it a little more palatable. Maybe we need to jazz up our service with some movie clips or something. God loves to use the small. And I'm not saying that as an argument against change. Perhaps we do need to change some things in our corporate life together. Or maybe we just need to be reminded that God loves to use the small. Small prayers, small seeds, small seasons of life. And all of it matters. Don't despise the day of small things. I want to give you some names. I did a little exercise this week. This is a decade's worth of names. I'm not going to give last names just for privacy sake, but let me give you some names. These are not people who have left our church because they were disgruntled But these are people that have simply left because they've moved. John and Jeannie, Matthew and Rachel, Dan and Laura, Scott, Joe and Elizabeth, Jeff and Renee, Elsa, Corey and Andrea, Kyle and Julia, Doug and Joyce, Steve and Lena, Heidi Jeremy and Brianna, David and Jackie, Phil and Sherry, Chris and Cynthia, and I could go on and on. If these people that I just listed and all of their families were here, this room, these chairs, we'd need more chairs. But it's not about the size of this room. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul planted, Apollos watered, And God gives the growth. We were a small part of these lives. Impacting their journey for just a season. Ministering the light of Christ in a real way. God loves to use small things. Small seasons. Don't miss your opportunity with those who are here today. Who might not be here next year. And of course, this is true not simply in our corporate life together as God's people, but in our individual lives. Small choices of obedience, small decisions to love, small decisions to be men and women of integrity. Every day, God loves to use the small. So don't despise the day Of small things. Sure, glory days are ahead, but there's also glory to be had here and now. Church, I hope you are encouraged by this this morning. God is with us, He's working in and through us, even through the small. And He reminds us to be dependent, to be patient. To pray big and then devote yourself to small. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning once again for your word given through your servant Zechariah to us. We thank you for the vivid imagery that you've set before us, a reminder that you, Holy Spirit, have given and will continue to give all that we need for life and godliness, for our witness and our light in the world. And Father, I pray that we in the midst of smallness would not be discouraged, but we would rejoice not simply in the bigness that is to come and there is glory to come, but we would also rejoice and recommit ourselves to the small things the daily decisions, the weekly relationships that matter and that you use for your glory. Oh, Father, use us, we ask. Give us your grace. Give us more of your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.